When Rivka came to join Yitzchak as his wife, she reignited certain miracles that had taken place while Sarah was alive. As Rashi illustrates from the story of Rivka entering Sarah's tent, the question is, how does Rashi see it in the story? And as we explore this, we find an amazing insight into the power of even young girls lighting Shabbos candles. So the Pasuk says, That Yitzchak brought her, Rivka, into the tent of his mother Sarah. When commenting on this Pasuk, Rashi uses as his headline these three words, to the tent of Sarah, his mother. Now, of course, whichever words Rashi chooses as the headline are relevant to what it is that he's going to discuss. Or she explains that what does it mean? It means that Yitzchak brought Rivka into the tent and then he discovered that, guess what? She is like Sarah, his mother. In other words, that means to say that she became similar to how Sarah was. In what way? As long as Sarah was alive, there was a candle that was lit on Erev Shabbos that remained alight until the following Erev Shabbos. There was a special brocha in the dough that it remained very fresh. And there was a cloud that settled over the tent. When Sarah and passed away, these three miracles ceased. And when Rivka arrived at it in the tent, they all came back. So how does Rashi know this? The custom of Farshim, pretty much all of the commentators on Rashi say, Pretty much all of them say it's because of the order of the Pasuk, that to the tent is written before it says Sarah, his mother. That gives us this information. In other words, if we would have read the Pasuk in the most obvious and simple way, which is that the reason Sarah Imoi is written in the Pasuk is to define whose tent it was, his mother Sarah's tent. If that was the intention of the Pasuk, the Pasuk would have written it differently. Either tent of Sarah his mother, Oi le oihel Sarah imoi, or to his mother Sarah's tent. But it wouldn't be appropriate to say the tent, with a definite article, which implies we already know whose tent it is because you're about to tell me whose tent it is. So that would be superfluous. So therefore, therefore, that would be the reason why Rashi explains that the first concept is Yitzchak brought her into the tent, the tent we already know whose tent it is. And then when it says Sarah, his mother, that is additional information. What's the additional information? When she entered the tent, it was like his mother was back because the miracles returned. Okay, so they explain that Rashi's motivation is the order of the words in the Pasuk that don't appear to suit a simple message of it's Sarah Imenu's tent. Problem is that there are three issues that arise when you explain it this way. The following things don't seem to make sense. Number one, Aleph. 
As mentioned, Rashi always includes the words in the title that he intends to comment on or that he's learning his commentary from. Why then did Rashi, who is so precise in all the words that he uses, why in the title did he include also the word his mother, which doesn't seem to work or add any value to what the Mephoshim have explained. According to the way the Mephoshim explain it, what prompts Rashi to explain that it's all about the miracles that returned is, that after the word to the tent, the Torah added the word Sarah. And seeing as the word Sarah being his mother doesn't add any value to this particular focus, Rashi didn't have to include the word Imoy in the title. Question two based. Why is it that Rashi, who's now seeing there must be a similarity between Rivka and Sarah, why is that similarity? Why is the similarity specifically that there were miracles? She calls man that as long as Sarah was around, those miracles had happened and then they ceased. Maybe it would have been good enough just to say Rivka had the same qualities or the same righteous behavior as Sarah, his mother. Why specifically miracles? Where in the wording do you see any hint at miracles? And then, even if we can, for whatever reason, argue that Rashi felt it had to be that there was a miracle that happened over here, and that's what Yitzchak noticed. Fine. So say there was a miracle that occurred, which was like sorrow was back, but there's nothing in the Pasuk that indicates the nature of that miracle. And there's certainly nothing in the Pasuk that indicates that there was more than one miracle that happened. And you certainly can't seem to see evidence in the Pasuk, surely, to these three specific details. And for that reason, that you see the Targum Yonas and Afshe Pirushoi Rochok Midercha Pshachet Pirushashi, even though the Targum Yonasan is willing to go beyond the simple understanding, still Shevi Rakasa Prachel Neodolok only gave one example of one miracle, the candle that lit from week to week. So, where does Rashi get all of this information from? Do you see it in the Pasuk? It doesn't seem to be apparent. So, maybe it's not so apparent. Maybe that's exactly what Rashi wants to tell us with the very last bit of what he says in his commentary. Let's suggest that the three details Rashi mentions are not absolutely apparent or uh, necessary based on just a simple understanding of the Pasuk. But Rashi wasn't only talking. But Rashi was actually quoting a Midrashic source from the Medrash Rabba, which is linked to and associated with the simple understanding of the Pasuk. And therefore, that's why Rashi inserted his source at the end where he tells us, Bereshis Rabba. Because if you have a look at original facsimiles of Rashi's handwriting, you'll see You can tell Rashi is the one who wrote over here. And it was not inserted afterwards by either the people who recorded his teachings or who printed out his teachings as often happens. So maybe that's it. Maybe Rashi is not talking. Pshat is actually invoking a medrash. But that 
really doesn't sit comfortably. Let's assume it's true. Let's assume that Rashi only gets those three pieces of information, the candle, the dough, and the cloud, only from the Medrash, and no association to the actual words in the Psukim. We'll still have two questions. Are dying in a movement? If that is true, Aleph number one, how come Rashi quotes then only three out of four things that the Medrash said, the fourth one being wide open doors, obviously for guests. Which would be another way in which Rivka is similar to Sarah. Why ignore it? And base secondly, very intriguing. How come then, if Rashi is quoting the Medrash, does he quote the three factors in a different order to the Medrash, and not just in a different order? He actually quotes them in the opposite order to how the Medrash quotes them, where it says, Anon kosha pesach oil, then brocha, and then mener dolok vuchule. And the Medrash first talks about the cloud, then the brocha and the dough, and then the candle. Rashi speaks about the candle, then the dough, then the cloud. And the truth is, besides that, if you understand how Rashi works and you're familiar with Rashi's style, it's actually really difficult to suggest that Rashi was only looking here to quote a Medrash and not to try and see his interpretation in the actual words of the Pasuk itself. Because the Rebbe has dealt with us numerous times in previous Sichas, generally speaking, if Rashi quotes something that comes from a Medrash, he doesn't say so. Because if Rashi is quoting them, just as you can learn it from a Medrash, you can also derive it from the Pshat of the Psukim as well. Which is why the primary source is actually the words of the Pasuk, and he doesn't have to tell us that it's also recorded in a Medrash. And where over Mokim Shapirish could go in Zemim Midrashi Chazal, if there is ever a scenario where Rashi quotes something for the Medrash which really does not fit with the Pshat, in which case Rashi would only be quoting this because the Pshat itself is not as clear as we would want to understand, then Rashi will tell us. Usually by introducing, saying, This is a drasha from our sages, or something like that. Now let's have a look at this Rashi. It doesn't seem to conform. Now in, in this Rashi, using that formula, either way you look at it, it doesn't make sense. If all three miracles are born out and need to be explained based on the pshat, Rashi would not have told us that it's also recorded in a Mishnah. Uh, sorry, in a Midrash, because it is in the Pshat. And if they are not illustrated in the simple understanding of the words, and therefore and therefore Rashi is really quoting an independent Midrash that is relevant to the Pshat, but not from the Pshat, then he should have done what he normally does, which is, he should have introduced and highlighted, Rabbi Seinu Dorshu. 
Our sages taught, it, sh- uh, taught us that as long as Sarah was alive, there were these miracles. Then they ceased and Rivka brought them back. So that lends itself to us thinking Rashi must see a source for each of these three miracles in the Pshat. We need to find that source. So here's the explanation. First of all, what's bothering Rashi? We saw all the Mephoshim saying that what's bothering Rashi is the order of the words and the fact that they should be possibly superfluous. But maybe it's not that. What Rashi wants to address is a problem. Not just in the order of the three words that he quoted as his title, but the fact that each of those three words is problematic. And Imoy. Because if you really think about it, we didn't apparently need any of those words for the Pshat of the Pasuk. Why not? Because the intention of the Pasuk at this point is Lesapra to tell us when Rivka arrived together with Eliezer and immediately Eliezer told Yitzchak when they were still standing outside of the tent Eliezer tells him the whole story of the miracles that happened how amazing it was to find Rivka. After that then Yitzchak took Rivka into the tent and married her. If that's what happened, and that's what the Torah wants to tell us, so all the Torah had to say was, Yitzchak brought her, or maybe a love, he brought her to him. And he took Rivka as a wife. If the message is that he married her, how does it add any insight, understanding, or depth to the story by knowing he took her to the tent of Sarah, his mother? We move on, unless, of course, you have to conclude that those three words to the tent, Sarah, his mother, adds something to the end of the story. In other words, it adds insight into the fact that Yitzchak married her. The Torah is clearly telling us with these three words, what motivated Yitzchak to agree to marry Rivka. And prior to that, despite what Eliezer had told him, he was not yet 100% convinced that this should be his wife. In other words, even though Eliezer told Yitzchak the incredible, supernatural, inc- unbelievable unfolding of what happened, that it worked exactly according to the signs that he had de- designated to indicate if this is the right woman. He told him, as Rashi says, the miracles that happened to him. That's, he got there in double speed. And that he davened to find the right woman and to have the sign and immediately his prayers were answered and there Rivka came. In which Eliezer saw clear signs that this is the wife that was designated by Hashem for Yitzchak. Eliezer is 100% convinced Rivka's the right person. She's got all of the accolades, all of the assets that Yitzchak needs in a wife, the things that Avram asked him to look for. 
Mikol Mokem, nevertheless, despite the fact that Eliezer was so convinced, Adayin loy hoi Yitzchok botuach legamrei shiochin doyme lemishpachto. Yitzchok was not yet 100% sure that Rivka was like his family, specifically le'imoy Sarah, like his mother Sarah, which is what he was looking for. And what Avram Avinu was looking for. But Sitkus v'chulei, the extent of righteousness and so forth. After all, that is the reason that Avram Avinu sent Eliezer to find a wife from within the family because she's got to be like the family, specifically like Avram's family, most specifically like Sora Imoi. He wasn't convinced until That's what the Torah is telling us. Those three elements are indicators of what convinced Yitzchak this is the Shidduch. Now that we are starting to understand that Yitzchak's final decision to take Rivka as his wife followed her entering the tent, then that already makes it clear to us that when she entered the tent, he must have seen miracles that were greater than the miracle of the super speed that Eliezer traveled, or the miracle of exactly the girl he had just davened for now coming out, and the miracle of the water coming up to greet her, etc. These had to have been greater miracles because those miracles hadn't yet convinced Yitzchak, and whatever happened in the tent did convince Yitzchak. These miracles must have been powerful enough to convince him that she belongs in Avram Avinu's family and that she's similar to Sarah Imenu. Rashi will explain how. That's what Rashi's telling us. Those three words, they illustrate the three miraculous things that Yitzchak saw that convinced him Rivka is the correct woman. He saw a, a miracle linked to the tent. A miracle that spoke as if it was about Sarah. And a miracle that is exemplified by the fact that it was his mother. Or be proteus al piaseder let's unpack it and in the order of how it appears in the pasuk. Ha oihelo behei hayedia. The fact that the Torah says the tent with a definite article nesa kosher lo oihel. That means that there was a miracle linked to the tent. Kloim nesa mavdil so oimli kol shaar ha oihalim. It had to have been some miracle that would distinguish this tent from any other tent anywhere else. Which is why the Torah would be comfortable to say it is the tent, the unique tent, the tent that is different to all other tents. A tent that is well known. How is it well known or why is it well known? Rashi says, you know why it was well known? Because this was the tent that had a cloud that settled over it on a constant basis. Now, how do we know that that's something significant that distinguishes a place? Well, we've already learned that. We've already learned something similar in the previous parish at the story of the Akedah. When it says that Avraham Avinu saw their special, designated, unique place from a distance, again, with the definite article. That there was obviously something that distinguished that place from any other place that indicated that it had a unique holiness. To the extent that the Torah could call it the one and only place, 
What made it different? Rashi tells us, It's because there was a cloud that, would, that had settled on the mountain. That was the sign it's the place to go. Now we know, that also in our case, when the Torah emphasizes the unique standout tent, must be talking about a similar kind of marker slash miracle on kosher oil that there's a cloud over the tent like there was a cloud over Harhamiria. That would be the sign that this tent is absolutely unique from any other tent. That's number one. Sora, miracle number two has to do with Sora. That would have to speak about a miracle that has something specific to do with Sora and something that we've already seen happen to Sora before. Will also be something we learned in the previous parasha, this time when the angels came to visit Avram Avinu. When the angels came as Avram's, so to speak, guests. Avram Avinu personally served them food and drink. With one exception that the Torah tells us. Avram Avinu rushed, he rushed into the tent to Sarah. And he says, Mari, go quickly, prepare soilless, fine flour, lushivasi ugois, knead it up and turn it into, into breads or matzahs, as the case might have been. So he says, in other words, Despite the fact that Avram Avinu wanted to be hands-on and personally involved in hosting his guests, to the point that he personally ran, despite his intense pain having been post-bris, what did he run to do? To bring them a calf. Yet when it came to baking, that he left to Sarah. Because there was obviously a unique link and connection between Sarah and baking, Sarah and dough, Sarah and bread. So if our Pasuk is alluding to the fact that there was a unique miracle that happened, that happened somehow with relationships specifically to Sarah, we can deduct, move on, it must be a brocha associated with dough, because we have precedent for that, that Sarah has a unique connection to the dough. Therefore, says Rashi, that's the miracle of brocha metsuya that there was this blessing in the dough that it remained so fresh for a long time. And then lastly, imoy, the third miracle is associated specifically to the mother relationship. Even a five-year-old who's learning Chumash for the first time can work out, even if he's never learnt it in any book, that lighting candles on Erev Shabbos is a woman's mitzvah, but specifically as a child, he sees his mother do it. So when a child is learning about a special miracle for a mother, he can quickly make the association that the miracle might well be associated with Shabbos candles. Because he sees his mother doing that mitzvah every Friday evening. And even though it might not 
only be his mother who lights Shabbos candles. Even girls who are not yet married may also be lighting Shabbos candles. Something we'll talk about in a lot of detail at the end of the Sicha. It's not exactly so consistent for other people to light Shabbos candles as for his mother to light Shabbos candles. Maybe he's a child who doesn't have sisters. His sister's a baby. But one thing he will see for sure is his mother lighting Shabbos candles. And therefore it's clear why Rashi doesn't quote the fourth item that the Medrash does bring that compares Rivka to Sarah. Because the Pasuk only has three words that indicate that there are three things the Pshat is talking about. And we've now identified the three things. Something unique about the tent. What designates something as unique? We know. A cloud. Sarah, something unique about Sarah. What's unique about Sarah? We know the dough. And Imoy, his mother. What's unique about a mother? Shabbos candles. That's where those miracles are. But there's still a question, practical question. When the Torah does it tell us that the miracle was that the candles lit for a whole week? Even if the Shabbos candles had remained alight for 24 hours, the whole of Shabbos, there would already be a great miracle. Who says it was a full week? So Rashi says, I'm not going to deal with that in detail, but I'll hyperlink you to where you can read more about it. Rashi is saying, you're right. As far as the Pshat of the Psukim is concerned, we have no indication of how long those candles remained alight. But there's a Medrash that does tell us. I can't show it to you in the Pshat, but I can refer you to a, mish, uh, to a Medrash. Look in the Medrash, and the Medrash will tell you this was the nature of that miracle. Practical question, though. Rashi's order now doesn't seem to make sense. First, he tells us about the candle. Then, the special bracha of the dough. Then one on kosher ala oil, the cloud over the oil. We already said before that Rashi is quoting this in the opposite order to the Medrash. But now we're going to take that question a step further. It's the opposite order of how it is all hinted at in the Psukim. The first word is the oil, which is on unconscious, speaking about the cloud. Then sorrow, which is the word sorrow talks about the dough. And then only after that, talks about the candle lighting. Why is Rashi brought it in the opposite order? Ah, so you might be tempted to say, well, Rashi is addressing the order in which the story actually unfolded, not the words of the Pasuk, but how did it happen chronologically? If you're tempted to answer that, well, firstly, you'd have to argue that Rivka must have arrived late on Friday afternoon, and therefore the first thing she did was to light Shabbos candles. Even if you say that, you don't know that the lights are going to last for a week until it's a week later, in which time you've already at least seen the cloud over the tent. 
So why did Rashi put it in the sort of Really, what should have happened is Rashi should have begun, but because of a medrash, very much like the order of both the Pasuk and the medrash, by telling us that the first noticeable miracle was the cloud over the tent. Which would have happened as soon as Rivka entered the, the tent for the first time. Then he should have spoken about the miracle of the dough, which you would have already seen the brocha happening with the dough, because it's not necessarily only about freshness, maybe it was about the, how well it produced or, or how good it tasted or whatever it was. And the last thing that Rashi should have mentioned should have been the long-lasting candle, which you'd only see next week. So why does Rashi take this approach and this unusual order, which seems to fly in the face of the Psukim and the Medrash and logic? The answer is, let's remind ourselves, what is the Torah telling us? That these three miracles represented by these three words, the Oihel, Sarah, and his mother, are the factors that convinced Yitzchak that yes, he should marry Rivka. Because these are the things that clarified that Rivka is very much like his mother Sarah. Makes sense then that the first thing you need to identify is that they are similar in righteousness. That's why Rashi actually first quotes the miracle of the candles that lasted from week to week. Because that is a miracle that occurred in the context of action behavior, specifically the behavior of a mitzvah. Which obviously illustrates her righteousness because look how powerful her mitzvah is. Her mitzvah goes beyond the time that it should have. It goes all the way to the next Shabbos. The next step so we're not talking about the step, the, the process, the order in which they happened. We're talking about the order in, in terms of what they represent. The first thing is the candles represent how pious she was. Then, the next thing is that there's a brocha in the dough. Because the dough is still speaking about things that Rivka does that are similar to things that Sarah did. But this is food production. It's not specifically a mitzvah. So it's not necessarily the space of piousness, of piety, of righteousness. And then last on the list is a miracle that is not related to anything that Rivka does. The fact that a cloud settles over the tent. Which is not linked to a mitzvah she's performing. In fact, it's not even linked to any action that she's doing at all. And with that, we have now explained how Rashi sees within the words of the Pshat, the three miracles, and why he puts them in the particular order that he does, and how this is so critical to knowing and understanding what uh, closed the deal for Yitzchak, that he should marry Rivka. Now, this is going to tell us a fascinating insight specifically about candles. One of the most incredible insights from this explanation of Rashi is this. Now that we've explained that Yitzchak only married Rivka, the fact that he chose to marry her happened after he saw the nature of her Shabbos candles. That indicates clearly 
That is clear evidence that Rivka obviously lit Shabbos candles even before she was married because it's one of the things that precipitated or contributed to them getting married. So it must have happened before they were married. Not only that void, Rashi tells us that Rivka was only three years old at the time. Too young to be obligated to fulfill mitzvahs. Yet, she already lit candles at that time. Not only that, this is one of the key factors to help determine that Rivka is like Sarah and therefore suitable for Yitzchak, which helps him to decide that he should marry her. And also, remember, it's not that if Rivka hadn't lit Shabbos candles, nobody else would have lit Shabbos candles. Because we know that Avram Avinu kept everything of the Torah, and even things which are only rabbinic, which Rashi himself tells us. That if there's any cause whatsoever for a woman not to light Shabbos candles, then the husband lights Shabbos candles. So therefore we have to conclude that ever since Sarah Imenu passed away, Avram Abinu must have lit Shabbos candles and most likely Yitzchak did too. So Rivka didn't have to light because there's nobody else to do it. And yet Rivka was not satisfied with the fact that there are Shabbos candles in the home, thanks to Avram Avinu. who was an adult, and had the obligation to fulfill whichever mitzvahs they could do at that time. She ignored that. She lit her own candle. Even though she was only three years old. And nobody told her, whoa, stop, don't do that. Which teaches us a very clear lesson over and on the theme of something that the Rebbe discussed a lot at the time the Sikha was said. That not only girls over the age of Bas Mitzvah should light Shabbos candles even before they're married, but even younger girls, even from the age of three, who don't yet have a formal obligation to fulfill mitzvahs, if they can already understand and appreciate what Shabbos candles is all about, we should be educating them to light Shabbos candles. Even if there are other people, who are already lighting candles, including her mother. They're lighting candles in the framework of being required to do so, and they're doing so. They are obligated. We learn from Rivka. Even though you might say, look, Rivka might have been three years old, but she was way more mature than your average three-year-old today. As you can see from the story of Eliezer, that Eliezer paid attention to her conduct and her behavior, which you wouldn't necessarily do to that extent with an average three-year-old. And that's also why before the Shidduch could go ahead, she had to agree. 
Not only did she have to agree, but Rashi has already told us, From Rivka's example, we learn that you can never marry a woman without her consent, even if she's an adult, and Rivka was a child. The bottom line is she was three years old. Long before she became an adult. And she is halachically classified as a child, no matter her maturity. She is halachically not obligated to do mitzvahs, yet she lit candles. Lesson for us that girls from the age of three, as soon as they can understand the value of Hatlakas Neris, should be lighting Shabbos candles. The truth is, it goes even deeper than that. There's even something more mind blowing here. Komor, we already said, certainly must have lit Shabbos candles every week. Yet, despite that, even though the Pasuk has told us that Avram Avinu was at this time older and Hashem had blessed him with everything, which means not only was he given everything physically, but he was given everything spiritually. Look at this. In the bad soy, when Avram Avinu lit Shabbos candles, and likewise when if and when Yitzchak lit Shabbos candles, there is no indication that their Shabbos candles remained alight week to week. As happened with Sarah's candles. And which resumed with Rivka when she started at three years old to light Shabbos candles. That shows us the unbelievable power that is hidden within Shabbos candles. Power that is available even to the youngest girls when they light Shabbos candles, but no shalom when they're only three years old. Where every child, regardless of age, every girl is called a daughter of our matriarch, Sarif And therefore, Validad by that child lighting her Shabbos candles, Nasa Kol Habayis Mu'or. That will illuminate her home for the whole week of Shabbos, all the way to next Shabbos, even though she's three years old and she's not Avram Avinu. The only difference is, of course, the, the candles that Sara and Rivka lit, the actual physical flames remained alight for a week. Because that was the miracle, that the candles remained lit, and therefore the power and the, the radiance of Shabbos candles lasted for the week. And we don't see that in your average person who lights today. It doesn't last for a week. But on a deeper, more spiritual level, the same principle applies to every girl who lights Shabbos candles. Even though our limited eyesight can't see it. Because as we know from many sources, the activities of our predecessors not only indicate to us how we should behave, 
but empower us to be able to behave that way. Therefore, every person who is a daughter of Sarah Rivka Rochel and Leah has the capacity that her Shabbos candles will have a positive illuminating influence on the entire week that will follow, whoever they are. Another mind-blowing insight. There's actually an advantage specifically to the candle lighting of little girls. Because when Chazal want to tell us the amazing greatness of the breath of those who study Torah, which keeps the whole world going, they immediately tell us what kind of breath are we talking about? The breath of those who have never sinned. The learning of children. You can now extrapolate out that the action, the mitzvah of a person who has never sinned, in this case the candle lighting of a girl who has never done an avera because she's underage, is so incredibly powerful. Okay, what does need some attention is, this must then be an advantage which applies across the board to all mitzvahs that children do. Nobody really goes into it. Not only talk about Torah learning. Okay, something that needs attention. But the message is, the power of a little girl lighting a Shabbos candle is beyond what any of us could imagine. The reason why specifically the candles of Sarah and and in spiritual terms, the candles of all of their descendants, every woman and girl throughout history, remained alight from week to week, which didn't happen to Avram Avinu, and therefore, by extension, doesn't have the same spiritual power when a man today lights candles. We'll be able to understand, based on another insight that the Torah tells, or the Gemara tells us, between, uh, as to the distinction between men and women. The man's job is to bring in raw product into the house. He brings the wheat home. He brings them from the outside, indoors, into the home. And then his partner, the woman, her job is to take the raw product and convert it into something which is human nutrition, wheat into bread. In other words, they created the nature of the world in such a way that men are out there conquering, taking over the world. Where his primary activity is to take control and ownership over things that are outside of his space, and bring them into his space. The woman's approach is the exact opposite. Seeing as the whole greatness and beauty and glory of a woman is internal. Her job as the mainstay of the home is all indoors or out of sight or out of the public domain. Which means that the husband will bring the raw product into her space and she'll convert that raw product to be usable, 
to be edible. Or on a more subtle and elevated plane, that they should be suitable to Adam Ha'elin, to Hashem himself. When Avram Avinu lights candles, seeing as Avram Avinu's um, uh, stay, his, his area of operations is not within the home, there's no reason then that his activity should in any way change the nature of the home, that the home should be illuminated in a supernatural way. That's not his area of operations. His area is to touch the world out there and bring it through the door. Whereas when it's Sarah and Rivka, and then through the generations, all of their female descendants, all daughters of Israel, who were entrusted with managing and caring for what happens inside the home, which means to have a meaningful spiritual impact on the physical things that live in the home. They therefore have the power and the capacity to have an ongoing, long-term influence on everything that's inside that home. To the point that all week long you can tell this house is different. This home has a radiance. This home has a glow of the impact and the efforts of Jewish women. With that, we can conclude by looking at the order in which Rashi presented the three miracles according to the deeper or mystical perspective. The commentaries pointed out that the three things Rashi quotes, which is Ner Doluk Mer Shabbos Lev Shabbos, candles from week to week, Brocha Metsuya Beisa, special blessing in the dough, Ve Ana Vanan Kosher Al Oil and a cloud over the tent, Hem Kenegat Sholosh Hamitzvos Shinitztavu Bahem BeMiyuchud Benoyis Yisrael. So the commentaries point out that these align with the three special mitzvahs of women. Chala, to separate from the dough, the mitzvah of Chala, Nida Taras Hamishpacha, the family purity, Badok Saner and Shabbos candles. Through fulfilling the mitzvah of lighting Shabbos candles, that brings light to the house for the whole week. When a person is careful to fulfill the mitzvah of challah properly, brings a brocha into the dough, into the bread. And when people are careful about the laws of family purity, that brings this cloud over the home, which means the so-called cloud of the divine presence settles on the home. Now that we know that those three miracles are linked to those three mitzvahs, we can understand why Rashi put them in this particular order, because it's the order in which girls encounter those three mitzvahs. The three miracles are dependent on the three mitzvahs, so they are therefore aligned with how girls will do these mitzvahs. As soon as a girl is old enough to understand what she's being taught, she starts lighting Shabbos candles. Therefore, what's the first miracle we speak about? That has the impact of light through the week. Which is a little bit older. And she starts to participate in family and household activities. Then she also starts to make bread and fulfills the mitzvah of And at that point, she can have the miracle that there's a special brocha in the dough.
And then much later on, only when she's married, then then she fulfills the mitzvah of Tarasimishbocha, and then you have on kosher you have the special divine presence that she brings into the home. Practically, from everything that was discussed in the Sicha, you can understand the incredible value and merit that a person has if they get involved in making sure that every Jewish girl takes from the age of Chinuch should light a Shabbos candle. It's an amazing thing to be part of. And through the Shabbos candles, even of little girls from the age of three, will be able to merit that Debishta says if you show me the candles of Shabbos I will show you the candles of Tzion of the Beis Hamikdash which had happened immediately with the ultimate Gula now